0: you have your copies of God's Word with you today, would you take them and turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, 1 Timothy, chapter 6. <clears throat> so we are coming now towards the end of our study through the book of 1 Timothy that we have been engulfed in since about, I think it was around the first week of September last fall. We have been in this book going just verse by verse, and we've got, I think, three weeks left if to you count today, three weeks that will be in 1 Timothy as we get to the end here in chapter 6, and now the second half of chapter 6, but the end of this book is so rich. So much good encouragement for us here, so much rich exhortation for us to open God's word and to find these words of of holy exhortation to us, to to humble ourselves and bow before his word and hear what it has to say to us, and also to hear the great and the rich encouragement that that Paul gives to Timothy and, and through that to us by the power of the Spirit who inspired all of these words to be written. So today, 1 Timothy, we're in chapter 6. I'll be reading for us verse 11 through verse 16. It's printed in the bulletin for you, and you're welcome to follow along there as well. But let me ask you, if you're able, would you stand as a way of showing honor for the reading of God's Word? 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God... Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him the honor and honor. An eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray together one more time. Father, this is your word, given by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to your people, that we might grow in our Christ-likeness, that we might see a picture of Jesus our Savior, lifted up in all of his beauty, and be drawn to him. Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you will give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to us. May we be sensitive to your words. May we listen carefully to them. And may we do them. In the name of Jesus, amen. Go ahead and please be seated. One of my favorite books, perhaps of all time, is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's a great book. Story. It's one that children can read and enjoy from a fairly early age, as it's fairly simple. And yet it's also one that is very profitable to read as an adult. And you read it as an adult and you say, my goodness, how could this be for children? The themes are so rich, the characters are so complex, and it's so true to everyday life. And it truly is what I consider a classic. That is, it's one of those books that, although it was written hundreds of years ago, you read it and you think, this could have been written last week. It's still just as applicable to today as it was when it was written. And here's a bonus for free. When you read it, read it in the Oxford Classics edition. Don't go for the abridged, updated, modern English version. You don't need it. Get the original. It's not difficult to read, and it's far better. But what I love about it is it's this story of Christian. You know, perhaps, it's an allegory. That is, it's meant to teach us a lesson about life. It's Christian who lives in the city of destruction... And he is warned by a person named Evangelist to flee the city of destruction, and he does, and it's the story of his journey to the celestial city. And as he journeys, along the way, his journey is a fight. From start to finish, he encounters enemies, trying situations, difficult valleys that he must pass through, all sorts of enemies who want to stop his progress, some indeed who want to kill him, and he fights the entire way, and he's armed from head to toe, he has helmet shield sword he has the key in his pocket he has the scroll that he's been given he has all of these means of grace that are given to him that he might fight this good fight that he's been called to this journey that he's on from beginning to end which is we know it's the christian life it's the christian life and what paul says to timothy here in verse 12 he says fight the good fight fight the good fight this is the main point really the main exhortation of this passage that we see as Paul is kind of winding up this letter to Timothy, his young protege. He's writing to him. He's encouraging him. As he gets to the end, what's the main thing that's on his mind? What's on his heart that he says, this is what I must leave Timothy with? An exhortation to fight the good fight. It's an exhortation to persevere. If you remember, in fact, that's also where he began. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So he begins in chapter 1 saying, Timothy, wage the good warfare. And now he ends in chapter 6. Timothy, fight the good fight. Life is a battle. I I thought we could title this sermon if we wanted an ordinary Christian life in a hostile culture. It is about how to live as an ordinary Christian, how to live a faithful Christian life in the midst of a hostile culture. How to persevere. How to endure. How to be steadfast. If you remember, Timothy is charged to stay in this church because of all the problems it has. Because of the false teachers who are there, who are uh, undercutting the faith, who are leading many astray, who are piercing themselves and others with many pangs. That's why, and so he's in this horribly difficult situation. His life, his calling, is to live a faithful Christian life in the midst of trials that are all around him. And this is is Paul's word, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Endure. If, If Timothy, who lived in a broken and unhealthy place, and if he needed help to fight and to live faithfully, what will our strategy be? What is our strategy, then, to fight the good fight? That's the exhortation. How will we do it? How will we do it? We, like Timothy, live and work and play in the context of a culture that that doesn't love Jesus, does not listen to him, does not value what he values, and so where does our help come from? Here's what we find in this passage, these, these few verses. Paul gives Timothy three exhortations and three encouragements. Three exhortations, what to do. Three encouragements, here's what to remember to help you do it. So first, his exhortations to Timothy. And we see these in the first couple of verses here. Look at verse 11. That as for you, O man of God, flee these things. That's the first word, flee. Flee these things, O man of God. So he's just spent a paragraph describing these false teachers, these ones who teach. They don't agree with the sound words of Jesus Christ. They're preaching a different doctrine. That they're, it's out of accord with godliness. They're puffed up with conceit. They have a craving for controversy. They love to quarrel about words. They're envious and dissentious and slanderous and evil. They desire to be rich, which is a root of all kinds of evil. That's who they are. And now he says, but you, O man of God. You, this is what you do. That's who they are. This is where you live. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. All that the false teachers pursued, all that was leading them up to verse 11, verse 11, by which they wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pennings. Timothy, flee these things. Just think for a moment about that word, flee. What does that word picture? What does it convey? It's, it's from the Greek word fugo. That's how, where we get our English word fugitive, one who is fleeing, who's on the run. Uh, I think, when I think of the word flee, I think of my parents two years ago when Aubrey and the family and I were moving here from South Carolina, driving across the country, and we were headed to Colorado to spend some time on the way with my parents who live in Colorado. And they live in this big forest it's called the Black Forest. And that was the summer of the big forest fire. And, and so literally the day we're pulling into Colorado is the day this fire has begun. And my dad has to evacuate the house. And the firefighters, he's trying to get back to the house. The firefighters tell me he has 10 minutes. Go in the house, grab whatever you want. You have 10 minutes. You know, this was not a youth group illustration. It was reality this time. He had to grab what was most important, and he did it. And so as we all got there, we got to Colorado that day, we couldn't go to my parents' house. So we all went to some of their friends' house, about 10 minutes away from them, and they were friends of my parents, and we just had to stay there for the night. And we woke up the next morning, and we turn on the news to see what is the latest. And what we see is this. The fire overnight has changed directions. And now it's coming towards us. And the house where we're staying now has to evacuate. We're in the new evacuation zone. And so, you know, how do we how do we respond at that point to the call to flee? News authorities, the firefighters saying, flee the fire. What do we do? Do we sit around and debate, you know, is it really that dangerous? I mean, do we have to, what if we just walked? What if we sort of moseyed in the other direction, but we don't really flee. We don't run from it. No, at that point, we flee. We know the dangers. We load up the car as quickly as we can, throw the dog in there, and we just go. And in the rearview mirror, I can see this huge plumes of smoke coming up from the fire, and we were fleeing for our lives. And that's what Paul is saying here. Flee these things. See the danger that is inherent in these sins. Don't look on them and say, Sin, is it really that bad? I don't know. Flee. Flee. For by them, he says in verse 10, Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So flee the temptations. And then here's the second exhortation. As you're fleeing that, the second one, pursue righteousness. So flee those things. Pursue instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And so here's the good fight. It requires, on the one hand, fleeing from death and pursuing life. It requires actually this active pursuit that we're not just sitting waiting for transformation to someday happen to us if the Lord should will. No, he says pursue these things. Be active in your pursuit of them because there is a life that is in accord with sound teaching. Do you remember that word we highlighted last week, this word accord, that that false teaching accords with a certain lifestyle? and the true sound words of Jesus Christ that is the gospel that accords with a certain lifestyle and we are to pursue that lifestyle righteousness godliness love faith gentleness we're to pursue a faithful life not not be passive but to be active we should be actively pursuing so so here's the question this text would put to us is what are we pursuing What have we been pursuing this week? Most of us are, at all times, engaged in some sort of pursuit of some lifestyle, some thing that we would like. We're not content. We want to be somewhere else. We want to live differently. What are we pursuing? Here's what Paul says. Pursue righteousness. Pursue uh, godliness. Pursue steadfastness. Just look at those last two virtues. I mean, we read the list, and it's, it's kind of these big, general theological terms, but look at those last two words on the list. Steadfastness. You could also say endurance. He's saying here to Timothy, listen, you're in the midst of a difficult situation. He knows he's in the midst of a difficult situation. Paul's the one who told him to stay in it. But he is to pursue endurance because you know, our, our first reaction, we're, we want to flee that, right? We want to flee our difficulties and our trials. And he says, no, That's where you endure. That's where you pursue this virtue of steadfastness, of staying, persevering, in the midst of where God has called him to be. Stay and don't give up. Don't be one of these ones who easily flees. And then gentleness. I mean, isn't that always the first thing to go when we're stressed? Isn't that always the first thing to go when we feel like we're in the midst of this trying situation with these difficulties, that gentleness is the first one to go out the window? He says, pursue that pursue that be even more intentional why does he pick that one out of all the fruit of the spirit that he could have told timothy to pursue he says gentleness pursue gentleness and here's the third exhortation first flee second pursue and then verse 12 and i take this whole verse kind of together he says fight the good fight of the faith take hold of the eternal life to which you were called take hold of eternal life that's the third exhortation take hold of eternal life Now, I'm encouraged by that exhortation, by that command, and I hope you will be too. Keep in mind, as we say this, he says, take hold of eternal life. Remember, he's not thinking in sort of systematic theology categories, right? It's not as though eternal life is just floating around and anyone who wants can grab it. But he's speaking to Timothy, who's been called to it, who's made his profession of it. Now he says, Timothy, take hold of it. Take hold of it. He says, in life there is a fight for faith. It's always a battle. All of life is a battle. And part of fighting the good fight is fighting for our own faith, taking hold of that which we've already been called to. Taking hold of it. That, that we are often, yes, we're tempted to doubt. Our hearts are prone to wander. Our consciences accuse us fiercely sometimes when we walk in a way that's, that's out of accord with our profession. And and we need to learn at all of those times where our heart is wandering, we're doubting, we're feeling down, where our conscience is accusing us, oftentimes rightly. And he says at this point, you need to learn how to take hold of eternal life, fight for the faith that is ours. And here, let me try to give us a picture of it because there's this great moment in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian is walking and he's going through the Valley of Humility. And in the Valley of Humility, he meets the great, Fiend Apollyon, who's this great enemy of his soul, who comes to attack him and to battle him, and he speaks to him. And Apollyon is threatening him, he's trying to get Christian to turn back, and he begins to list all of the sins that Christian has committed. He's accusing him, he's trying to render him so fearful and doubtful by his sins that he just says, You're right, who am I? I give up, I'm gonna turn back and he's accusing him. And Christian responds, after this list of his sins, Christian looks at him and he says, All this is true and much more which you have left out. But the prince I serve is merciful and ready to forgive. See, that's Christian fighting for his faith. That's Christian taking hold of eternal life, knowing what it is to take the gospel and to use it as a comfort to his soul. We read a very similar thing in the words of a great hymn that that was written a little after Pilgrim's Progress. It says, "Uh, Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. He says, when your conscience smites you, when when the accuser roars of sins that you have done, yes, I I have done all of those and many, many more. But Jehovah forgives. He is merciful. He's ready to forgive. Those don't derail us. That is taking hold of this eternal life. And then after Christian says that, there's this uh, long, drawn-out battle. You know His confession is not the end. And now the fighting, the good fight, it, it carries on and there's a sword battle between him and Apollyon which it you know, looks like you know, it's very dramatic. He might lose, he drops his sword, but he gets it again and he's able to to scare off Apollyon and he overcomes. But he overcomes by faith. He overcomes because he's taking hold of the eternal life to which he has been called. Taking hold of eternal life means first we, we uh, recognize that all those sins that Paul tells us to flee, we only flee them. We only take hold of eternal life if we recognize that, that those roots are in our heart. We only overcome when we recognize them and we own them as our own and repent of them. Ask the Lord's forgiveness for even those those drawings of spirit towards those things. And that's why he says, flee those things. It's going to be easy for you to give in. Flee them and take hold of the eternal life that you have been called to. Now, those are the three exhortations. Flee pursue and take hold. And if we just stopped there, at the end of verse 12, we could have a sermon with a real stirring call to living the Christian life, to fighting the good fight, having a radical lifestyle of uncompromising holiness, and we'd be all stirred up. But this is my fear, is that we would be stirred up and then we'd get to the parking lot, and then we'd get stirred up about lunch, and we'd just be uncompromising in our pursuit of lunch, and we'd just forget it. We'd just forget where we've been. And so what he does now in the remaining verses, is he gives us three, three encouragements, three things to remember, really. He calls Timothy to remember, first, his own calling in Christ, to remember the testimony of Jesus, and to remember the glory of God. His calling, the testimony of Jesus, the glory of God. First, he calls him to remember his own calling in Christ, and for all of us to remember our own calling in Christ probably, you've noticed by now, it's stood out to you by now, that 1 Timothy has a lot to say about false teachers. There's a lot to say about these ones who are upsetting the faith of those in the church and ruining the church. They're false teachers. There's actually three specific passages in 1 Timothy that deal with false teachers, and it's interesting. After each one of them, Paul says to Timothy something about Timothy's calling. After each one, so in chapter 1... We have up in verse 3, there's this first warning against the false teachers. They're they're teaching different doctrine. They're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. They're wandering away into vain discussions. They're rejecting a good conscience. They're making shipwreck of their faith. Here's the first warning. And then, verse 18 of chapter 1, he tells Timothy of the calling on his life. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you he reminds him he's been called to this ministry. And he does it again in chapter 4. The second main passage about false teachers is chapter 4, verses 1 through uh, 5. We read this, it was a while ago now, but he says, the Spirit expressly says, in later times, some will depart the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons. And then, it's down below in verse 14, where he says, Therefore, Timothy... Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So again, he follows up the warning of false teachers. Remember the calling that is on your life. And now here he does it in, verse, or in chapter 6, rather, up above. This whole passage we looked at last week was this warning about the danger of false teachers who are piercing themselves with many pangs. And now here he says... It's verse 12 when he says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So again, here's what he's doing. He he warns him. And he always takes him back to the fact that he has been called. He has a calling on his life from Christ to do this ministry. And this last one in verse 6 is perhaps the most interesting for us. Listen carefully. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You know what I think that's referring to there? He, he's probably looking back, not necessarily to Timothy's ordination to the ministry or his calling to ministry. It sounds like he's referring to his baptism. His baptism is that place where Timothy would have made the good confession about eternal life in the presence of many witnesses because he says take hold of eternal life about which you made the good confession that's his baptism he's saying look back to your baptism in times when you are tempted to doubt when your heart is prone to wander look back to your baptism remember the good confession you made then and so this is what what we do also do you remember what happened at your baptism If you have been baptized and made the profession of faith, do you remember what happened? Let me remind you. It's easy to sort of get that wrong and to remember the wrong thing. So let me remind you, and I want to to do so by reminding you about the call of Gideon that we find in Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6 is the call of Gideon. Let me just read some of these verses for you. I want us to hear how it goes, starting in in Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. I'm going to stop there because that's the main point. We see at the beginning there, Gideon is hiding, he's threshing wheat in the winepress. That's not where you're supposed to do it, but he's hiding from the Midianites because he's afraid. And the Lord comes to him. There's a little comic relief here. He says, greetings, O mighty man of valor. Wait, why is the mighty man of valor hiding and threshing his wheat in the winepress when he's fearful and he's afraid? And despite that, the Lord calls him to a great task. Go in this strength of yours and deliver Israel from the Midianites. And, and poor Gideon here is afraid, isn't he? He feels insufficient to the task. He feels that he can't do it. He, he makes all these excuses talking about who he is. Lord, Lord, how can I do that? My clan is the least in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. Who am I? I, I am not sufficient. He's looking all at himself, and he's, he's afraid that he's not sufficient to do those things that the Lord has called him clearly to do. And do you see how the Lord reassures Gideon here? Did you hear what he said? Does he say to him, I don't know, Gideon, you're underestimating yourself. You're better than you think. You're stronger than you think. You have talents that you're not recognizing. No, he doesn't say any of that. What does he say? The Lord is with you. He says, the Lord is with you. That's how he reassures him. He says, that's enough. And see, I wonder what you are feeling like the Lord is calling you to this week that you feel that you are insufficient to accomplish. Maybe maybe you're dealing with a person or a situation at work that that you know how the Lord would have you to respond and to deal with this, and yet you just feel insufficient to be able to carry that out. Maybe you're a a parent and you just don't feel sufficient to deal kindly and graciously with your kids. At the end of a long day, you're just so weary, you just say, how can I do that? I just don't have the strength in myself to live as I know the Lord would have me to do. Maybe it's as a husband or a wife, and you just don't feel sufficient to love and to serve your spouse in the way you know the Lord is calling you to? Maybe you know what you ought to be doing. Maybe you you, you even want to do those things and you see people who do them better than you do and you admire that and say, wow, that's, that's great. I just wish I could do that. I'm just not sufficient to do it. And what does the Lord say? The Lord is with you. He gives his spirit to be with you. His grace is sufficient. He says, remember your own calling here. Remember the testimony that you made. Your calling is not that you are sufficient to do these things. Your calling is that the Lord is with you. It's that he is sufficient to do these things in you. If you remember, uh, two weeks ago now that Ruby and Ellie were, were up here and they made their good confession. They pronounced they Announce their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you remember the words? Your words might have been slightly different, but this is what we asked is, do you resolve and promise in reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Not in your own strength. But in reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit. You've been to do this. And so this is what we look back to. Not our own confession, not our own calling, but the promise of the Lord that he is with us. That's the first encouragement, is to remember our calling. Here's the second encouragement that he gives here, is is to remember the testimony of Jesus. This is verse 13 and 14. And he charges him here, very solemnly in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony, before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a solemn charge. He's called two witnesses. God the Father gives life to all things, and Jesus Christ, who, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. Now, we are to look back and to remember the testimony that Jesus made. What was the testimony that he made? What is he referring to there in verse 13? Well, there's two views of that testimony. One view is, is that his testimony before Pontius Pilate, it was actually the words he said. We could look them up in John 18 where, where he says, you say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world. There's a second view. Some scholars say we need to, to think a little more broadly and, and see that the testimony of Jesus, it's not only the words he said, it's the life he lived, specifically that the death that he was just about to die. And this actually makes a lot of sense out of 1 Timothy 2.6. If you just look back at 2.6, where he says, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. What's the testimony? It's his death on the cross as a ransom for all. So when we see the testimony of Jesus, when we are to remember the testimony, where do we see that? We see that at the cross. Here's the testimony of Jesus. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we see his His example he sets for us, but we see more than that. We see his provision for us. We see his grace for us, his forgiveness for us. We see his love poured out for us. We are to look to him as him who went to the cross for us, demonstrating the love of the Father, forgiving all our sins, providing every grace, calling us to himself, all that we see at the cross. That's where we see the love of the Father. And so we're to look to him. When the Spirit is pressing something on your heart, when he's pressing on your heart, flee these things, O man of God. Pursue righteousness. And you're hearing those words, and the flesh is rebelling a little bit, and you're saying, no, I don't want to do that. You to look to Christ. Look to him at the cross. Look to the testimony of his death. as he who went to the cross for us. We can't fight the good fight without that. And then he adds in verse 14, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, we look back and we see him at the cross, we look forward, we see he's coming again at the proper time. And so we fight the good fight as those who are longing for something better, those whose inheritance is not here, but in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, there's this great place in Pilgrim's Progress, again, a Christian, is at the house beautiful, and he's speaking with this person named Prudence, about the means by which he fights the good fight. How does he do it? And, and Prudence says, do you not at times find those carnal things of which you speak seem to be purged? In other words, don't you have good times also when you're able to flee? Christian says, yes. Although these experiences I don't have as often as I would, they don't last as long as I wish they might. We can relate to that. And Prudence says, can you remember how they happen?" you have these occasional great moments where you really do flee and you really do pursue righteousness. And say, how does that happen? And Christian says this. Yes, when I think what I saw at the cross, that will do it. When I look into the role that I carry in my bosom, that's supposed to be the word of God, that will do it. When my thoughts wax warm about whither I am going, that will do it. See, this is not the updated language. Yet I feel it's not I myself achieving this." the spirit of him who loved me and gave himself for me. Prudence says, what is it that makes you desire so much to go to Mount Zion? And Christian says, there I hope to see him alive that did hang dead on the cross. And there I hope to be rid of all those things that to this day are in me an annoyance to me. There they say there is no death and there I shall dwell with such company as I like best. For to tell you the truth, I love him because I was by him eased of my burden." And I am weary of my inward sickness. I would fain be where I shall die no more, and with the company that shall continually cry, holy, holy, holy. See, we hear what, what he says he looks to. What is it that helps him? What is it that gives him these experiences of joy? He says, Well, it's when I either look back to the cross, or my thoughts wax warm about whither I am going. He's looking forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ. And he says, These two things, by the Spirit's help in me, give me such endurance as i need they give me such grace for every trial as i need it they give me exactly what i need so that not by myself but by the spirit of him who loved me and gave himself for me he is able to fight the good fight to wage the good warfare to press on in perseverance and endurance so he's he's called to remember his his calling in christ he's called to remember the testimony of christ and then, finally, he's called to remember simply the glory of God. And here we see the end of this passage, verses 15 and 16, where Paul just breaks out at the end of this paragraph into this majestic doxology. And it's a fantastic one, isn't it? Verse 15, which, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And, and we read that, and don't we think, well, that's a little out of place? Because why doesn't the book end on that? Right there, he's still got a few more verses to go. This is that. Shouldn't this be separated? Shouldn't this be at the end of the book all by itself? This nice little prayer that just ends on this high note. Poor Paul. He's so he's so confused. He got this in the wrong spot. His thoughts were out of order. But no, Paul. Paul's not confused. He knew exactly what our hearts need to give us encouragement. And I think he put this very intentionally in this practical section. In this section of encouragement to persevere and to endure. And and he points Timothy to the glory and the majesty of God as a means to help him. As a means to say, this is how you fight the good fight. This is how you do it. And, And this is a very practical section because The titles of God that he lists in this can be of great encouragement to us. Whether you're despairing, whether you feel your heart wandering, look at the titles of God. J.I. Packer wrote that those people who know their God have great boldness for God. He says the knowledge of God, seeing the character of God, this is not some idle speculation for ivory towers. He says this is what you need in the midst of of fighting a good fight, of the practical endurance issues that we face in life, you need to know the character of the God that you serve if you're to endure. Those who know their God have great boldness for God. God is the blessed and only sovereign. That is, he is the only sovereign. He's the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the one in full and complete control, apart from whom nothing exists, apart from whom nothing moves or lives. Paul says in Romans, If God is for us, who can be against us? And I think he actually expects an answer. Go ahead, who's against you? Compare them now to God who is for you, God who is the blessed and only sovereign. This is meant to be for us encouragement, joy, hope, delight, a spur to to move on with great joy, to fight the good fight. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He alone has immortality, He dwells in unapproachable light. Paul focuses here on the glory of God in order that the corresponding smallness of Timothy's opponents might be seen. In order that Timothy might feel encouragement and joy with these opponents, just focus our eyes on God, the glory of God, whom no one has ever seen or can see. See, for us in, in our world, in our culture today, this the standard is, If you're discouraged, if you're feeling down, or you're feeling sad, let me talk to you about you. Let me tell you how great you are. You know what? You're good enough. You're smart enough. Doggone it. People like you. You're better than you think you're underestimating yourself. Well, that's a bunch of hocus, isn't it? Don't talk to me about me if I'm feeling down. Talk to me about God. Point me to the Lord who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you and he alone dwells in unapproachable light. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If I'm feeling depressed with my trials around me, point me to the God who is greater than all of my trials, who does not leave me, who says, I am with you. So I say, Lord, I'm not sufficient. Who's sufficient for these things? And he says, the Lord is with you. That's hope. That's joy. That, that's ability to persevere and to endure in the midst of these trials, to fight the good fight so often. Isn't it so easy for us to just go about our daily life as though God were not around? We bracket out time for devotions, but the rest of the day as though God did not exist. And and Paul says, live your life with this doxology hanging over it. The glory and the greatness of God always at the front of your mind. That's the, the hope that gives you strength to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare to flee sin and to pursue righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we are are thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the, the words of encouragement that Paul gives us in this passage. And Lord, would you write them on our hearts? Would your spirit help these words to dwell with us by faith, that we may fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Not on what is passing away, but what is eternal. That we may see Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, interceding for us at the Father's right hand, that we might draw strength, not from good high thoughts of ourselves, but from your glory, your unsurpassability, your majesty in heaven. And Father, may we be strengthened to fight, may we draw hope and joy and delight and comfort, that we may press on, Lord, that Jesus might be lifted up, that He might be glorified through our faith and through our obedience. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Our song of reflection.